so for this podcast, I'm thinking if we focus more on seed and series A deals, I mean, there's been a lot of like series C's and beyond. Let's just look at stuff, you know, that's interesting, right? So let's go like in, in high level. What are your thoughts about the music space as a venture capitalist? Like when you hear that there's a someone who's gamified music learning, your initial thought is interesting. My initial thought is it feels like a slightly smaller market that's pretty crowded. So I'd be really curious in terms of what their go to market strategy is, how they're acquiring users. Uh, look, we're an investor in a handful of related startups, right? So we're investors in some ed tech companies. We were an investor in Spotify. We're an investor in Smule, which does a lot of music apps that are kind of similar to this. So the flip side is like, there are definitely like these pockets of communities that are really, really passionate about music and creating content and, and so on and so forth. So it doesn't surprise me in a lot of ways that they have 20 million users. That, that's fantastic. Generate 50 million in revenue. Yeah, it sounds like a solid business. Do you think that's 20 million active users or 20 million total registered users? That's probably, well, it's monthly users. Monthly users? So monthly actives is probably the Yeah, monthly users grew from 14.5 million to 20 million. Would you say that's common to see that as a venture capitalist, is that a common number to see? Well, like they're raising a series B, so they're a little further along. Um, I'm actually surprised that they're not raising more money uh, it's a $28 million round and to be at $50 million in revenue last year, it seems pretty impressive. So maybe they're pretty close to break even and don't really need the money. I'd be curious how much of this is secondaries as well. So, mm -hmm. Do you think that a company that raises money, would raising a smaller amount be on purpose if they have like acquisition plans? Like, cause if you raise too much- To be acquired. You you can't get acquired. Like who was yeah, the company could be, that could or, or a lot of company, a lot of founders are like, hey, I just, we're already kind of at break even. I don't need to give up that much dilution. I'd rather take just a little bit less money. Or sometimes it's, hey, we want to be able to bring on some really great partners, right? So if you look here, they've got, uh, it looks like it's really being led by Amazon on the Lexus fund. Um, and so that kind of makes sense. That's a very strategic type investor. And so maybe they opened up the round in order to bring them in, as well as a bunch of these are like kind of who's who investors, right? Um, Mark Pincus, Jason Kalkanis. I mean, they've, they've got a bunch of great people. And so there might be an element of that there is going on as well. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Generally, how often, how many music deals do you see in a given month or two? Is it like a common? I mean, we don't do a ton of music investments, and I would say there aren't a lot of music-based companies getting backed. Yeah, because my background as an angel investor is I rarely saw any, most of the deals I saw was B2B SaaS, yeah. and very few that were focusing on the, a consumer play. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And that might just be more of a Utah background. We're both from Utah, by the way. How often do you see deals in construction management? Uh, they're definitely more common than they used to be. Yeah, we've looked at a handful of different kind of prop tech, construction tech deals over the years. You know, it's interesting, construction's one of those industries where historically there hasn't been a lot of technology there. And so I think a lot of different companies have said, hey, there's an opportunity for us to come in and, and really add a lot of value here. The flip side of that is that there are a lot of companies that have done that. And so, you know, it, I feel like it's, there's a lot of low hanging fruits. These companies can get initial traction pretty quickly. But then the question is like, well, is there really going to be one winner that kind of dominates the space or not? And then within construction, you have a lot of, it, you have this like long tail effect where you have some very large developers that, that do a lot of big projects. And those are probably really great customers from a recurring basis. But then you have this super long tail of developers that, you know, not that they're fly by night, but they, you know, they come up, they pop, you know, 
they do business and they shut down and they're kind of one project at a time. And so I think it makes it a little more tricky to run like a really solid recurring revenue business off of that market. When I looked at deals in the space, and this was a little while back, is that the good sign that we identified is that there were a lot of companies that were managing all their projects through an Excel spreadsheet. Yep. So typically we looked at that as the ability to, for like a new market, it's like you could make something a hundred times better. Sure. But the the thing we saw was, at least at that time, was unwillingness to adapt to new technologies. Mm -hmm. And I think the other big component was when you're out in the field, it's extremely difficult to have internet access and to run some of these, these SaaS applications even on a mobile device. So yeah. we might have been that we're hitting a tipping point or more of a tipping point. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. I think there is a timing issue, right? And, uh, you know, today I think people are a lot more technology literate broadly speaking, mm -hmm. and internet is, you know, much better deployed. And so a lot of these applications are probably applicable and, and usable for the first time ever. Okay. Let's keep going through, if you're familiar with Super Sapiens. Well, this is in Atlanta, so I'm really interested because we're opening an office this this coming month in Atlanta. You guys currently have an office in San Diego, Salt Lake City, and now? And soon to be Atlanta. Yeah. Okay. So they sports continuous glucose monitoring. I think this space is Kevin Rose from, he used to be at Google Ventures. Yep. One of his recent podcasts was on glucose monitoring. It's one of the things that I wanted to do a lot. I've been focusing, yeah. I purchased an Oura ring and a Whoop band. Yep. I'm, just, I'm personally interested in the space. Yep. I think it'd be fun to start a company in this space, but it's mm -hmm. like where it's consumer electronic and IoT, it's a very difficult space to compete in, but it's, it's one of the areas that's popping up is the glucose monitoring. Yeah, I'd be really curious to see how their technology works. So we're actually an investor in a company called Tula Health that has a continuous uh, glucose monitoring technology that they're working on. It's pretty interesting. Glucose monitoring has been around for a while. For yeah, me the big challenge is whether or not it's invasive. So today the gold standard is Dexcom, which actually is a needle that goes, it's a patch with a needle that goes in your arm. Uh, it has a battery and you know you swap it out. It's, it's relatively expensive, but it's you know continuous, which is which is really cool. And then there are a lot of companies that are trying to figure out how can you do something that's non-invasive, right? Like right through your Apple Watch, for example. Uh, and, you know, I think the challenge, there's so many challenges with that. But if somebody can crack it, the market is just so big. Yeah, my preference is that my Apple Watch that I'm wearing right now is that Apple would open up more of their health kit APIs mm -hmm. to allow other companies, like, because a lot of times I'll wear an Apple Watch and a Whoop. Yep. For very different purposes, but like it's all collecting the same data. They're just trying to collect it more frequently. And I would like to personally see one of these things that brings, like it's more of a platform that people can plug into. You know, yeah. it's so funny you say that because I pitched you on that idea not that long ago. It is, I think your idea was a little bit different. I think you wanted a place where you could store your data. And I don't think these other places are gonna let you store your data. But if I, if you someone created a platform where, you know, Whoopspan could also communicate to your platform. And but maybe isn't that kind of the same thing? It's similar, but different. I think you wanted to, like, let's say you're using Apple Health, you want all of your help, Apple Health data to go there. So if tomorrow you switch to a Samsung device, you could switch. No, no, it was less of that. It was more like, hey, all of my data is in these des like these disparate devices, right? And I'd like to have it a central place where like, not only does my Apple device data flow in, but I can also pull data from my smart scale, from my Whoop, mm -hmm. you know, whatever it might be and have a nice dashboard where I can start doing interesting things yeah. with it. Like this space, if someone says, John Bradshaw, here's a million bucks, you probably yeah. need more like two to three to get off the ground. 
Sure. It would be a space that I would personally would love to go into because like I see you've got all these people who are trying to solve different things. I think Apple's a generalist in the space. Mm-hmm. I think you have people like Whoop who are focusing on the high end, but someone who, who can really simply have a really good user interface that brings all this in and you truly own your own data, which makes it more, more swappable would be kind of fun. So even if you want to use the Fitbit watch and it would plug in, mm-hmm. you could do more and more with it. You see so it else? looks like they're using Abbott's um, glucose monitor, okay. and then they're just they're kind of saying what you're saying is like, hey, we're gonna use we're gonna take Abbott's device, you use that, and then we'll pull the data from that and do interesting things with the data. What I'm saying is, I think I agree. I think there's a really interesting opportunity out there for somebody to build a platform that pulls in data from multiple devices, right? You think yeah. like pulls in from Abbott and your Whoop and you know your Smart Scale and all of these different things. And then uses that data and AI to really generate interesting findings that are very personalized for you. Or like, right? let's say you even go to the hospital and you get uh, you get like blood tests and stuff like that. Yep. That those tests, that, that data, data can be sucked in, in there. Yep. And I don't. Have you seen that out there yet? There's a, there are a couple of companies that are doing some really interesting things, um, where it's it's like a very personalized clinic, and so they do they collect a ton of data and they do a lot of different tests. Um, on use of blood tests, um, bone marrow tests, I mean, all kinds of different things. And then they pull that data in, analyze it, and create very personalized uh, recommendations for you. But those services are in the like thousands of dollars a month. Uh, so it's really limited to kind of the more wealthy set. But I, I don't see any reason why, the, you know, better solutions can be offered down market. Uh, with the technology that's currently out there. The other thing that I'm really uh, interested in is personalized medicine. Mm-hmm. So it's the concept that, like, so I take finasteride, which is a hair loss medicine, and it might affect you different than it affects me. Someone sure. might be Irish or African American or Asian. Yep. It could affect us all differently. And so Whoop is starting to get into this where you're able to start a, like A-B testing, but if you could start actively monitoring and if they could create this huge database of comparing your health data to similar people, it might tell you here might be better outcomes. Sure. You know, how does your gut feel? How does your, you know, how does your heart rate feel? Do you sleep better? Those type of things. Yep. And that's like, that's a level of performance I think is currently impossible, but could make a 10, 20% increase impact of your life for productivity. No, absolutely. I think there are a ton of opportunities around that. So the last one for today, let's review Keeper Tax. So Keeper Tax just raised a $13 million Series A. Okay. Um, and their big focus is the gig economy. Workers in the gig economy like Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, people who are doing gig type of work. I think Foundation Capital is a fund that you're familiar with. Yeah. Yeah, they're a great fun. What do you know about Foundation Capital? I know Foundations, they're, they're a great fund, you know? Done okay. a lot of great deals over the years. Um, the rest of their their backers are great too. E-Ventures, we had one of our students go to work at E-Ventures. Matrix, great fund. Okay. Um, a lot of kind of traditional Series A funds in this round. Okay. The way they make revenue, at least right now, is they charge $89 per gig user per year. Okay. And they help kind of with all the 1099 tax mm-hmm. tax related stuff. Correct. If you go to their That's homepage, their focus is we help you discover write-offs. My guess is that they focus more on, they're a much simpler version of like a TurboTax, QuickBooks combo. Mm-hmm. Just trying to make it super simple. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on the space? I think it's really interesting. I mean, big question is the Secretary of U.S. Labor just a couple of days ago came out and said that he thinks all gig economy workers should be classified as W-2 workers. 
So and a W two worker would be an employee. Right. So that that may not bode particularly well for this company. The flip side of that is I I'll be shocked if that actually happened. People have tried it multiple times. Every time it gets shot down in court uh, or it's voted out. Uh, because I think at the end of the day, people really like the flexibility. Right. Now, granted, I'm very biased because we were an investor in. Uh, Postmates and Lyft and, and Airbnb and others, which are very much in that gig economy. Mm-hmm. But people like the flexibility. They don't want to be told when to work and so on and so forth. And so I think if they do end up classifying them as W-2 workers, employees, that there will be a lot of backlash. And ultimately, what probably needs to happen there, this is kind of well beyond uh, tax keeper, but there probably needs to be a, like a designation or classification of worker for that that is really tiered geared towards uh, the gig economy. But look, the gig economy represents a massive portion of our economy. And I think we'll continue to go be that that'll be the case going forward, especially if you look at like Gen Z. So Gen Z is characterized as as people that are kind of hustlers, right? They're going out, they're working hard, they've got maybe a full time job and a side hustle. Uh, they're they're driving for Uber and Lyft and and delivering food for for Postmates and and DoorDash and all these other things. And so I, I don't see that going away. Right? Okay. I think that's going to continue to grow. And so providing services like TaxKeeper for that population, I think is pretty smart. For a company to raise $13 million in the space, what do you think some of their metrics might might have been? Yeah, my guess is that they're probably probably about a million-dollar run rate. Okay. A couple million, maybe, run so rate. So company's doing a million or two in the space. You think that's... Would they're be raising what a Series A. So Series A, you're kind of looking at companies that are kind of at the $1 to $3 million run rate range. And, uh, you know, $13 million bucks. So if you assume that they're giving up about a quarter of their business, okay. they probably raised this, you know, 30s, low 30s okay. for money. My evaluation. Okay. Well, here are some of the few interesting deals that we saw from this last week. I actually have one more deal. I want one more deal. Let's on. dive in. So this is a deal I just wanted to hit on because it's it was announced this week called Paxos. Are you in Paxos? I'm not in Paxos. 300 million Series D. That's a lot of coin. That's a lot of coin at a 2.4 billion dollar valuation. How do and they pull kind of that? that if you read down here, they just closed 150 million plus back in December. Okay. So they are flush with cash. But here's what they do. It is like probably one of the more boring businesses out there, but they are what we call like picks and shovels for cryptocurrencies. So if you want to launch, so so PayPal, right? They want to start accepting cryptocurrency and allowing their customers to accept and pay with crypto, right? Through PayPal. There are all these like regulatory things that they need to have. They need to have like custodial and escrow support Mm -hmm. and all these different things. That's what Paxos does. Okay. And so almost overnight, companies like PayPal can spin up uh, and start uh, offering crypto as a new uh, way to transact by using companies like Paxos. Okay. I think this is super interesting, right? Because companies like Paxos are serving like this really important need in the market, but it's, it's certainly not sexy, right? Okay. It's all in the background operation type stuff. Um, and I think investors are really recognizing that by the fact that one, cryptocurrencies today are just exploding, right? Mm-hmm. And lot more and more people, it's becoming more and more a part of everybody's daily life. Okay. And so companies like PayPal and Tesla and some of these others are saying, hey, we need to be able to transact with this type of currency. Um, and companies like Paxos are making that possible. Okay. So there's a local company called Taxbit. Taxbit. And yeah. also PayPal investors, or I assume PayPal 
PayPal Sim- invested in Taxbit. Yep. Mm-hmm. So Taxbit is very similar to Keeper Tax. Okay. Except for they're like they they help people that have invested in cryptocurrencies do their taxes because it's a very nuanced uh, tax tax code. Okay. What is your future thought on crypto? Let's end in there. Man, is crypto that's such a loaded question. Is crypto going to be a currency? So I think the blockchain is here to stay, right? There's so the blockchain's many... been here for a while though, right? Like yeah. the blockchain's not a new thing. It's like no. 20 years old, it's right? Like, the concept yeah. or more? Sure. It's just another form of a database. I think the problem is, is like what cryptocurrency is going to be here long term. Yeah. Right. Do you think and, cryptocurrency will be a current? Because I don't, under current form. I don't think cryptocurrency will go into You don't think Bitcoin will, will be here 20 years from now? No, I don't think Bitcoin will be here. It's just like the, the initial web browsers sure. and the initial internet eventually got replaced by something better. My big critique okay. on crypto, and I would worry about being an investor in a space like this, is like, I think so. One, I'm probably, having been burned as a founder, like, you know, you work so hard and it goes up in flames. I see Bitcoin is a very volatile thing, so as a founder, it makes me nervous as an investor. That's fair. But like, if you're not if you're not doing the next like bleeding thing as a VC, you've told me this many times. If it's if it's not looking super risky, like you're never going to make good returns as a VC. Probably true. Um, so that's one of the things I've learned from you. But I think for me, I think Bitcoin or something like Bitcoin could be here 10, 20 years from now. Yeah. But the big issue is the transaction energy and time required to reconcile the ledger and to process the transaction and like even like if i wanted to pay you at a grocery store like let's say you owned all the 7-elevens i go to 7-eleven i swipe my digital wallet it it goes to begin the the transaction you could have a clearinghouse perhaps which would then act like another visa mastercard that says hey this transaction is approved but doesn't get finalized it would take like even chase bank right now for me and discover take days to reconcile. Sure. But now a transaction for them to reconcile, I assume discover, they take a couple of days, but the actual database transaction time is minimal. With sure. the blockchain, that'd be like seven, eight minutes or more. Yeah. And so how does that scale? And how does that scale? There, are different, there are different currencies that are being released that solve a lot of those problems. They're so. better. So that's why I would say long-term, I don't think it's going to be Bitcoin. But what you need is you still need, I mean, at the end of the day, even the U.S. dollar only has value because we ascribe value to the mm-hmm. U.S. dollar, right? And so that's one of the things that these mm-hmm. these coins need. That's one of the interesting things about Dogecoin, right, is Elon Musk comes out and says, hey, this currency, sh- it would be fun if this currency actually became something people used. Mm-hmm. And because he says that, that lends credibility to it. And that credibility convinces more people to buy and, and hold it. Uh, and use it, right? Which right. pushes the price up. And as the price rises... It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. And so that's a big part of it. It's like, yeah, maybe Bitcoin isn't the most uh, beneficial uh, because, you know... Are you more... There's pro- energy issues, okay. there's whatever. But you have so many people that are holding and using it that it actually becomes useful in other ways, right? This mm-hmm. is like classic disruption theory, which is you have a technology that is not... That's inferior in so many other ways, but is superior in one way. Mm-hmm. Right, that, that that nobody else can match, and over time it, it displaces everybody right. else. So I pr- what I would predict is that Bitcoin will eventually fade. A new crypto, if it can solve the transaction cost issue, uh-huh. it will slowly like get more and more steam, and then surpass Bitcoin. See, I think probably the more likely thing that's going to happen, and you're kind of already seeing this, is that there will be specific tokens for specific applications across a wide range of things and bitcoin will ultimately become 
a currency that allows you to easily move from one token to another, as okay. opposed to having to move from dollars into those tokens, which is a fairly tedious process. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's actually a lot, a lot easier to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So in that case, like it be, it never becomes like a utility coin, like a lot of these other things that are out there, but rather becomes kind of a liquidity coin. Okay. Like I can see liquidity or a store of value coin. Yeah. Totally fine with that. What I'd like to see is something that goes that next, that next jump. Well, this also begs the question too, is that there's a lot of regulatory, right? So like the Fed could come out, right? And so if you, and say Bitcoin's illegal, right? Okay. You have to use FedCoin. Okay. Right. Um, and, and people like Ray Dalio really think that that's a high likelihood scenario. The so, okay. you know, we'll see, right? Okay. Well, awesome. Well, thank you guys for watching. Make sure you like, subscribe, and we'll be back next week with more stuff. Bye.